Welcome to Pod 2112, the official podcast of the 2112 Group, where we talk with industry thought leaders, business executives, and influencers who are shaping the technology market and the world around us. I'm your host, Larry Walsh. The old joke about cloud computing is that it's just a server in someone else's data center. You know, and for a while, there was a lot of truth to that statement. The first generation of cloud computing was little more than servers hosted by service providers. Cloud computing isn't just about hardware replacement, though. Clouds have little value without applications to manage operations, process workloads, and facilitate transactions. Just as software is eaten the world, it's also eaten the cloud. Well, perhaps not eating as much as enhancing. Cloud computing is evolving and becoming increasingly more dynamic thanks to the explosion of applications migrating to the cloud or built specifically for cloud environments. Moreover, application developers and independent software vendors are bringing products to market that expand and enhance the value of cloud-based services. If you want to create new services in your cloud environment or you want to get more out of your cloud-based applications, no problem. You just attach a piece of complementary software. The increasing volume and value of third-party applications to cloud environments is changing vendor go-to-market strategies. Vendors are building cloud-based marketplaces to facilitate the sale and distribution of complementary applications to their cloud services. They're forming new relationships with application developers and independent software vendors to create new value-added offerings. And in some instances, traditional cloud providers are taking on the look and feel of legacy distributors. Joining me today to talk about the changing dynamics of cloud partnerships and go-to-market strategies is Chris Reimer, the Vice President of North America Cloud Ecosystems for Business Partners and Channels at IBM. Chris knows a thing or two about cloud ecosystems, having headed Google's cloud ecosystem and partnerships, and as Director of End-User Computing Alliances at VMware. Chris has some interesting perspectives on the evolving nature of cloud alliances and partnerships. And with that, welcome to Pod 2112, Chris. Larry, thanks for the invitation to join today. You know, as I said in the introduction, you know, we hear about cloud all the time. Um, and we often think about cloud computing as a, being a bit amorphous. It, you know, it's this magical place and, you know, or some will even go to the other extreme and say, it's just a bunch of servers in somebody else's data center. But I think over the past couple of years, we have learned that it's not even just about the cloud itself or the cloud provider being able to provide infrastructure. It truly is about the applications that run on the cloud. Uh, I'm, I'm going to agree with you heartily because that's actually what's starting to really differentiate the different cloud providers. Um, as, as we move toward a world where those applications and the value they deliver, uh, in some sense, um, really help define the cloud platform underneath them. When, you know, I, I guess the question is, why has it taken us long to figure that out? I mean, it, it seems it's, you know, we start off in the cloud era as being you're either providing, you're providing the, the hosted servers, so we had to, we could move our infrastructure up, or we're subscribing to an application on somebody else's servers. But we, it took a while, it seemed like, for us to get to that uh, critical mass of being able to do both. If you think back five, 10 years ago, right, the folks that were responsible for server and, and IT infrastructure had absolutely nothing to do with the line of business person that was trying to figure something like billing or accounting or HR or CRM out, right? Now, th there's an application team, there's an infrastructure team, there's a networking team in, in companies of any reasonable size. And, you know, lo and behold, here we are with line of business owners making strategic decisions now about how they're going to operate 
a CRM system, for example, and they make the decision to go with Salesforce, nobody in IT is consulted. And frankly, no one in IT has the power to say, no, you, you can't do that. So it's fascinating that, that we find ourselves in a position where these two worlds were so far apart and through the advent of SaaS, it's brought them ever closer together. And I see that all the time when you think about how the view of, of cloud as it started as pure infrastructure, then the advent of platform as a service, still yet independent of software as a service. And now, now it's really all coming together. And that's certainly been the case here for us at IBM. Um, we don't even talk about the distinction at this point between IaaS and PaaS, for example. Well, so because of that, though, is that the IBM cloud, like other cloud providers, and you know, we won't name them here, but you are still a lot of infrastructure. And it seems as though it's moving beyond infrastructure because at one point we, you know, we said infrastructure and SaaS, but there was also platforms as a service. But it seems that, that even the infrastructure providers are now truly just platforms for hosting the applications provided by third parties. And, you know, why don't you, if you could, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of this, uh, this exploding ecosystem of software and applications that are being built specifically for cloud environments. Right. So, so it's funny that you talk about that because that's been a big, big push for us um, as we've embraced the, the container mindset um, very openly. Um, you know, whether you look at a proprietary solution uh, like Docker or an open solution like Kubernetes, we're very supportive. And, and why? Well, it's this, this thing you just spoke of. As people think about applications in the cloud, particularly those who've lived in a legacy world, you know, the, the logical conclusion is there's a great way to build and develop apps in the cloud. Well, wait a minute. Isn't there a great way to take apps I already have and think about how they might operate in the cloud as well? And the reason being, of course, the, the cost implications, the operational implications, and just the, the resiliency of a cloud-based solution um, makes people quickly want to bring what they have to that platform. And it's, and it's led to a variety of different solutions from a variety of us vendors. But at the end of the day, the application owners all want the same thing. Hey, I want my app to be available 24-7, 365. I want it to be available through a simple UI. I want it to be uh, something that can evolve quickly and not be beholden to some underlying IT architecture that I can't control. Um, those kinds of things have driven, uh, from a technical perspective, the apps to the cloud. But then there's the whole other side, which is the business mandate, right? People want cloud-like options, um, whether it's an enterprise application or something on your own cell phone, right? Local, you know, independent of, uh, you know, independent computes, not nearly as appealing as it once was. And we're seeing the evolution of the app ecosystem around that. So let's dive into that ecosystem because that's what's really interesting is this, is this explosion in the number of providers or those that are pushing applications or writing applications specifically for the cloud era. Does that change the way that you approach the nature of partnership? Because these are what we would normally consider to be 
vendors in the in the last era of the channel we would say that these are these are the vendors that are we should be interacting with now you are almost in a peer relationship in these ecosystems how does that change the nature and the way you work with them it's it's a that's a fantastic question because it, it changes everything right isv independent software vendor well first of all independent of what and I'm at IBM, independent of IBM. That's a term from 30, 40 years ago, you know, not, not beholden to the mainframe. So I think let's, let's get rid of the I. And then uh, vendor, hmm, you know, I'm not sure that's a good term anymore. So we're going to need a new acronym for sure. I just haven't been able to figure out what it is. But here's what I know. Anyone that's coding software, particularly those who used to be very happy about being able to code software and literally throw it over the fence and not worry about customer experience, Oh, my SI partners will worry about it. Oh, the end user will worry about it. Not my problem. I can't tell you the number of software companies that have lived in that world for decades with great success. Not that they don't care about their customers. It's just that it's not their problem to make sure that it gets deployed right. You know, I'm not going to name names either, but you can think about some very large three-letter acronym type applications that take hundreds of millions of dollars to deploy and can take upwards of 10 years back in the day, right? That idea... That notion is ridiculous. Why can't I turn that pre-configured instance on and begin running immediately? Thank you, Salesforce, for introducing that notion to the business world at large. But what's interesting is for smaller application company, you know, developers, what they want is they want to have affinity of their product to other products. And standing on their own, trying to wave and get people's attention may not make sense when there's an era where they can build a product, deploy it on a cloud platform, have consumption be instantaneous, the real challenge for them is simply getting enough eyeballs to understand what it is they built and how to consume it, and then try and find the natural connections between us cloud providers and other third-party applications or other resources that would augment what they've built um, collaboratively. And, And the cloud environment makes that kind of association at least, again, from a technical standpoint, super easy. So then, you know, it begs the question on the business side, the marketing side. How does how does a vendor, or as I said, another acronym there, how does how does an app dev uh, shop really think differently about what this does to the way they show up in the market? I know I've I've touched on a lot of things there, Larry. So no, you you have because it, you know, it's it's a lot to it's a lot to unpack um, because one of the things that I first noticed with the explosion of mobile uh, operating systems was the challenges that ISVs had and app developers had in building for them. It wasn't just flavors of Windows Mobile or Android or iOS, or I keep saying yeah. back then it was still BlackBerry. Um, it was the different versions that and the, the different device configurations that they had to build for as well. So there was an entire geometric spectrum of different builds that they had to develop for and maintain in order to be successful. I, I guess we're really looking at the same phenomenon in the cloud, only amplified because, you know, we could say that there's a a big three or a big five in the cloud providers, at least North America and globally, there's big 10, but there's still hundreds, if not thousands of smaller infrastructure providers out there as well, much less private cloud instances. Is, is that really going to be one of the biggest challenges these these developers have? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, from an IBM perspective, my my short answer would be no, hopefully not quite as as, as difficult as you said, because my hope is a lot of those 
um, smaller boutique uh, providers, platform providers um, would adopt the same kind of mindset we have at IBM, which is, you know, an open mindset, leveraging industry standards like containers, trying to make it easy for a uh, software vendor to say, all right, you know, I can go with this smaller company. And the reason I'm going to do it is, you know, I've got my reasons, whatever they may be. But the one thing that won't stop me from making that decision is the technology. And I, I can't say that all my peers would would uh, would think that way, but we certainly do. You know, one of the things we're very upfront about is it's a hybrid cloud world. It's a multi-cloud world. And it's going to be that way. And as we have existed for decades, and we've been through every wave of computing there ever has been, one of the things for sure, you know, it would have been a lot more convenient if you'd rewind 15 years ago for there to only be one, you know, <laughs> I'll say, you know, risk Unix solution. How many did the industry have to suffer through, right? Well, why did the industry have to suffer through that? Because IBM, HP, Sun all had viable, and others, by the way, right? They weren't the only only games in town. Um, you know, th there there were reasons for other platforms with other options to exist, and I, I don't see this era being any different. The difference is, to your point, there's an explosion of options, but that doesn't mean that there has to be an explosion of fundamental platforms that ISVs have to choose to write to. I think what it becomes what becomes interesting is the combined technical plus business. And again, that's what makes this revolution different. So much of what's happening now is not driven by technology. It's driven by business. It's driven by a line of business consumer that says, I have the power and the budget and the decision-making authority. I guess that's the same thing as power. And so I'm going to, I'm going to dictate terms, not you tech people, right? With all, with all due respect to my, 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 my like, my ilk. And they're the ones that are laying down what they want. And I think that any ISV who sees that kind of, of demand and finds a partner that can help them deliver against that demand is going to see success. So, yeah, for a while, we're going to see a lot more of these providers um, adding value in the long run. You know, maybe those that are both cost effective and offer great support to both the ISV and the end user will be the ones that survive, independent of us, as you say, Big Ten around the world. Um, I think that's how you see the smaller, uh, you know, niche players surviving in this era. Um, because again, as much as we'd all like to say that the cloud is is a commodity, and and a lot of us are building to these open standards, you know, no two are exactly the same, and there will be points of differentiation for a long time to come. We're differentiating on on AI, machine learning, the value of data in the cloud, and the power that we can bring to that. I'm sure other providers will show up with other offerings. Maybe it's not technical, as I said. Maybe it's business. So lot, again, lots, lots to that question. We, we could obviously talk about that one, Larry, for, for another hour. Easy. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we could talk about it. I'm not sure if people would listen to it, but that's an entirely different <laughs> issue. Yeah. <laughs> you, in, but you know, what responsibility do you have as the cloud provider for enabling these developers to be successful? Yeah. And, and on top of that, I'll ask this in, in tandem, what liability do you assume in enabling those providers? You you need them in order to enhance the value of your cloud. They need you to provide them with the technical resources. But isn't there a mutual liability if they if they also if they fail? 
Yeah, that's a these are two great questions. So first of all, um, I'll answer the first part of that. I view the answer to that as, you know, each of us big cloud providers is looking to do something like this. I, I can speak to what we're driving toward. One of the beauties of cloud is that we can we can bring the value of an independent software solution, one that is not tied to anything else. That's I'll, I'll truly use independent there intentionally. If we can bring it to our platform and create a, a marketplace or a, or a mechanism for where our client base or just those who have the ability to search and look for interesting solutions can find it, we've added value to that independent software developer you know, in a very demonstrable way. We will bring you value. That is a reason, that is one of what may be many reasons for that independent software developing person to decide to align with IBM Cloud. More than just the technology, it's the, it's, the, it's the notion that if I invest time and energy, it will find a place where there is some element of promotion, some element of attach to some portion of the IBM business, the IBM client base, or the world at large if IBM becomes very astute at, at helping connect these dots. I'm sure my competition thinks the same way, but we're being very deliberate about it in a way that we couldn't do in the past. You know, if you think back to the on-prem world, I've got a directory of all my partners. Of course I do. And it'll say, oh, um, here's a great software product and it runs really well on IBM systems. Great. Um, I kind of knew that anyway, right? That, <laughs> that wasn't very helpful, right? Whereas what we're talking about here is something that ties to the second part of your question, which is the liability. It's not just that, oh, you can come get this application here. This application is ready for you to consume right now. And if we do our homework right, and, and I'll use the term marketplace, if our marketplace is well designed, when you consume this application in the context of buying and consuming this application, you should be able to find the related applications, services, features, tools, things that would go right along with it that would make my marketplace useful for you to come in the first place. So the two things are intertwined. And of course, there's liability, right? Um, as I use the analogy of the software developer that threw stuff over the fence and didn't have to worry about it. In this scary world, they do have to worry and they have to be worried at all times. There isn't some go-between or third party that they can count on to absorb customer frustration if things don't work well. You know, if code is, is, not poor, is not properly written and there is some, some bad code that's released and you've got a whole bunch of clients that are discovering this, well, you're going to find out real time. It's not going to get filtered through some large global SI that gives you a call once a month and tells you how things are going, right? So, so on the ISV side, there's that. And then on my side, you know, on the, on the side of us platform owners and operators, there's a responsibility to ensuring that we help guide the ISV towards best practices for deploying their stuff in the first place. Hey, that's not advice I as a vendor used to have to provide, right? Again, the third party, you know, implementer would, would take care of that stuff for both me, the vendor and the ISV. So we're both in bed on this one together, but the upside is, is pretty powerful. Um, or let's put it this way, the premise of the upside is powerful because we see the value that kind of satisfying an immediate demand with an immediate delivery of a really high caliber solution to a client that's looking for it, that's, that's gonna, you know, that's gonna delight that client. That's gonna provide stickiness that um, will get that client coming back to this place to find more of that kind of solution, both from the partner, the ISV, and, and me as the vendor. 
or at least that's the thinking, Larry, because we're still early days in this thing, right? Right, right. But let's talk about that immediate gratification because one of the ways of doing that is not just giving the ISVs or developers the ability to work on your platform, but also to sell through your platform, as we've seen across many of the major market, uh, many of the major cloud providers have all deployed marketplaces of some type that customers can come in and select and deploy and provision applications either on top of cloud-based applications or into infrastructures. Are marketplaces opening a, a new opportunity or a new route to market for developers? And how big of an opportunity do you think it is if you, if you if subscribe to that? Yeah, uh, my, my, my thinking is, Larry, that it's huge. And because we're just getting started, it's hard to, ca- you know, it doesn't matter if an IDC or a Gartner or you guys publish data. It's just at this point, it's very, it's very, it's subject to a lot of modification over time, right? But so any models is going to just be what it is. It's going to be a, 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 a highly educated guess about where any of this goes. But what I can say is, if I was an application builder, I would certainly look hard at a marketplace that can bring me value, not just in hosting my application. That's that's the table stakes. That's the beginning. But more importantly, what is that market going that marketplace going to do to promote my solution um, by itself on its own merit, but then also tie it to other things that we know and users are trying to achieve. And how does the provider of that marketplace link me to those kinds of things so that when someone comes in looking for something, the natural affiliation of that thing to my product is made apparent. And this is where things like AI really start to to come in, Um, both from the discovery standpoint of what a client that's probing in a marketplace really wants to also helping identify patterns and consistencies with end users um, we're, again, light years away from being able to offer that, but we are all thinking about it. At least at, at this vendor, I can say we're looking at that and thinking about it. So our marketplaces can't do that yet, but that's why this is fundamentally different. And if you think about it, someone who's an end user from a large bank who happens to be part of, I don't know, uh, a, a risk department may come in looking for solutions that help them address you know, the risk segment that they're studying. Well. Today, that would be very hard. Imagine if you had um, an easy way to, to comb through a number of applications that were already pre-configured. You could actually start using it for free, take a look at the adjacencies that might feed into the system, and have a solution provider, not even a, an ISV, who's got some IP hosted here that helps tie two, three, four, five of these applications together and can walk someone through a scenario that might look very much like that end user's experience. And, have that person say, well, oh my goodness, I've got exactly what I need here. I've got the, the delivered solution from the vendor, me, the application that's been coded by the ISV, and that's there. And even better, I've got someone who's going to be able to come into my office and make sure that what I need is configured from both the vendor and the application developer in a way that works for my environment. That's the holy grail of these marketplaces. And, and from where I sit, we're not that far off. We're, we're, I'm not talking something we're going to see in five years. I'm talking about something that's on our roadmap. Um, and I'd imagine the others are in the exact same boat. Um, yeah. So 
you know, I know we could talk we could talk about this for hours, as we said, but you know, there's only so many electrons we can burn on the internet. I I, I want to close out with this question because if as we start to move into that marketplace model, as market cloud marketplaces begin to gain critical mass, does that make a company like IBM or IBM's cloud as much a distributor as it is a service provider? I think the more exciting answer to the question is a question right back. Does it even matter? Right. In other words, these distinctions we have in some sense, we're arguing we need to go away. And I think we need to stop trying to compare where we're headed to where we've been. I think mm. we need to look at where we've been. What's the analogy between an iPhone and, you know, uh, how we communicated in the 1950s? I don't know. I honestly could care less, frankly. I'm, I'm all about, okay, what is, what is the new iPhone 10 that I've had for five months mean to me versus the Android phone I had three years ago? I'm not really doing that kind of comparison at this point. So I think the distinction between distributor versus service provider really only matters to the people in the legal department who are worried about having contracts that call out one type or the other. I think where it gets really interesting and exciting is what does it mean for incentives? What does it mean for things like MDF and marketing programs? What does it mean for the way we treat each other? And I think that what one thing and one thing only is certain, this is all subject to change. And anybody who wants to try to conveniently mold this thing into a place they've been with regard to their partner typing or, or the role that they play is missing the opportunity to redefine who they are and how they how they represent value to both their ecosystem partners, but also the uh, the end buyers, whether those be large corporate buyers or an individual end user who represents a large corporate buyer coming to these markets and thinking about a new engagement model. So, Larry, that that's a really fun one, and you might want to take that up as a as a whole separate dialogue amongst all of us to, to dig into that one a little bit. Yeah, that you know it's. It's something that we are actually actively working on because we get that question all the time from from our clients on what is this what do these new models mean for incentives engagement models uh, the relationship and you know strangely yeah. enough you're, you you said it correctly you know you know or we should say Shakespeare was right you know first kill all the lawyers because the pushback <laughs> we always see is from legal <laughs> so you know it's. Listen, Chris, we could, like I said, we could keep talking about this and we're probably going to ask you to come back at some point in the future. But for now, we have to move on. And as our regular listeners know, that means we're on to our five questions. And Chris, our five questions are here to just to learn a little bit more about you and your knowledge. Um, we have tailored your five questions like we do for all of our five guests specifically for you. And we didn't mention this, but you are a pilot. Uh oh, <laughs> you fly, you fly things. So we have five questions to see if you can identify these famous pilots. Are you ready for this, Chris? Oh, no. Here we go. All right. Your first question. This pilot broke the sound barrier. Um, oh, come on. Uh, and he did Chuck Yeager. He did it over Chuck. at Edwards Air Force Base. That he did. Yeah. All right. So this pilot, he's much like you in general aviation. He flies small aircraft as well as the Millennium Falcon. Uh, or, oh, well, it's like Han Solo. Uh, no, yeah. that would be his, his real namesake, Harrison Ford. Thank you. Harrison Ford, <laughs> right. And and he did crash a plane during the shooting of, um, of the uh, uh, Force Awakens onto a golf course, which makes the next question appropriate. This golfer became a pilot to overcome a fear of flying. And, you know, he also has a refreshing drink named after him. I was just going to say, it's got to be Arnold Palmer. 
If it I'm is Arnold Palmer. Yeah. Yeah. He learned to fly jets, if I'm not mistaken. That guy, of course, he had the money to do it, but but he overcame that fear in a big way. Yes, he's, he certainly did. Okay, and speaking of uh, fears and phobias, uh, this pilot, he was an aviation enthusiast. He built an, he built an airplane manufacturer, an airline, as well as made several movies about flying. Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, not Howard Hughes, was it? It was Howard Hughes. Oh, You're four okay. four. <laughs> All right. And the last one, the best one for last. This warrior pilot did a lot to lead us to lead the strike against Japan in retaliation for the attack on Pearl Harbor. And that one, I'm going to have to say, I can't remember. I mean, I know exactly who it is, but I, I, I I'm not going to get that one without going to Google. And that's, that's cheating. <laughs> uh, it, it is cheating. Or as, or as the millennials say, the way we do things, yeah. um, it, it was Jimmy Doolittle. That's of course it was the Doolittle Raiders. That's I, right. That's what I'm talking about. Well, heck there was a, it's the movie Pearl Harbor. I mean, there was a whole premise around that. So, uh, <laughs> Should have had that one. That's a good one. Um, I'm well, it. Yeah. well, it's okay. You did go four for five, so that's pretty good. And, you know, actually, it's above average for these questions. So congratulations, Chris. Thank you. Fun, fun participating in that one. <laughs> and there you have it. You found another way to be reminded to bring your seats and tray tables to an upright and locked position by listening to us talk about evolving cloud ecosystems here on Pod 2112. I want to thank our guest, Chris Reimer of IBM, for joining us. And I want to thank all of you for listening to Pod 2112, a production of the 2112 Group, a technology, business strategy, and research firm. Join us again next time when we bring you more insights from industry thought leaders and influencers. For more information about 2112 services, check out our website at the2112group.com or email us at info at the2112group.com. And as always, don't forget to follow us on Twitter.